Waldy and Bendy. Hello, this is Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. I'm Waldy, otherwise known as Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and I'm joined as always by a man whose arrival in the world of art history has been likened to the arrival of a raging bull at the great Corrida in Pamplona. He's half matador, half art historian, the handsome and formidable Bendor Bendy Grosvenor. Bendy, how goes it? The highlight of my week, Waldy, you being nice to me, but you know, I have to remember that I am the mere studio assistant to your master. I am, I am the Govert Flink to your Rembrandt. <laughs> That's not how the world sees it, Bendor, you matador, you. <laughs> um, now, later in the podcast, it's the much-anticipated return of the Waldy and Bendy Awards. And this time we're handing out the Wendy's for the best painters of children in art. Very topical subject. Kids. Kids in art. Who was the best? So that's coming up in a moment. Uh, first, though, I was rather shocked the other day to hear Bendy, Bendy of all people, describe British art as, and I quote, not very good. That's what he said. And I thought to myself, what can he mean by that? So I decided we had better find out by discussing it here. Bendy, what do you mean British art isn't much good? <laughs> Oh, well, you know, we've been talking about iconoclasm, so it's always good to be a bit iconoclastic. And last week we were talking about Gainsborough, one of the very best British artists who ever lived. And it just made me think that, you know, he's one of those islands of brilliance that pops out of a sea of mediocrity, really, isn't he? And I've been thinking a little bit further about the topic because I've been asked to write a, a book on the history of British art from sort of year, I don't know, 2000 BC right up to the present day which is a slightly daunting topic, and I'm not quite sure how to tackle it. But one of my emerging theses looking at the big picture is that British art isn't actually very good. I mean, when was the last time you were in the Louvre? Did you ever find the room of British art in the Louvre? If you did, it's very, very small, and I think it's got one constable in it, and that's about it. Yeah, I think I'm, I've obviously been in there. I mean, yes, it probably blurs into, into all the other rooms in there, but that doesn't mean anything. That's, that tells you more about the Louvre than it does about British art. H hang on, before you go any further, you, you, you're not keen on British art, but you're writing a big book about it, the history of British art. I mean, that's a paradoxical situation already, Bendy. Well, it's like you writing a review of a show you don't like. It's going to be a very short book, I have to say. Um, it's, it's going to be a short history of British art. Perhaps we could summarise it in, in a few words. It's, it's not very good. But, but hang on, bear, bear me out, bear me out. You see, my point about the Louvre, I think, is a valuable one, because if you go to the Prado, you'll find the same thing, a very tiny little room for British art. It's a little bit better in the Met, but that's for a different reason. We'll come on to that later, perhaps. But what, what is British art's contribution to, to global art history? I mean, we perfected the portrait for a while. And that's partly because we had the Reformation here and we weren't able to do religious art. And, but more broadly, it reflects the fact that the Brits have never really liked art, have they? I mean, you and I, we, we earn our crust, or at least we try to, trying to make programmes for the BBC about art. And let's be honest, no matter how brilliant our films are, they're not ever in the top 10 viewing figures. And our little world in Britain is quite a niche world. And if we try and hold up the number of British artists who have bestrode um, global art history like Colossus and really contributed to it, really made a change, there's really extremely few of them. I mean, maybe Turner. Who else can we think of? And, and, and part of the problem is that for the first sort of two or three hundred years, what we might call the early modern period in British art from, say, about uh, 1450 or 1500 onwards, 
British art was was non-existent. We had to import artists from uh, from the continent, people like Holbein, uh, Van Dyck, Rubens, uh, Peter Lely, Godfrey Neller. Um, it was only until the uh, the early 18th century that we finally got our, our act in order and started having some decent British artists, really, to, to make a British school. And even then, it was, as I say, dependent on portraiture and largely dependent on on what we learned from Italy, from from artists going out on their grand tour and developing what was what Joshua Reynolds called the Grand Manor, uh, and then in the nineteenth century it sort of you know collapses again. We we just end up painting men in top hats and big beards and black coats. We have a little burst of originality with the pre-Raphaelites, you could say, but then of course they were they were harking back to a bygone era that never existed. Shall I go on? Is there a counter defence? You're so silent. There isn't There's one. a lot. Well, you're saying so much there. Um, and I, every, everything you say, a, a little sort of buzz goes off in my ear saying, no, 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 he's wrong. Um, <laughs> listen, first of all, I, I think I, I would approach this from a slightly different way from you, right? I think it's, it's a question of does British art have a particular flavour? And I would say the answer to that is yes, that there is, by and large, a flavour to British art which has about it a certain modesty, a certain sort of paleness, a quietude that is omnipresent and which doesn't play well on the big stages that you're talking about. So I'm thinking about people, you know, in the modern age, you know, landscape painters such as Paul Nash or indeed even, even Constable, some of those pre-Raphaelites that you talked about, John Brett, the ones that I like, William Davies, they don't play big in that kind of Louvre Prado Museum way. They are a different kind of talent, but not necessarily a negligible talent. So there's that. There's a flavour to British art, which is not big. You don't go into churches and get overwhelmed by massive fresco cycles. That doesn't happen. It's a different mm. kind of art. It's closer in that, in that sense to the spirit of Dutch art. Uh, but there's also the fact that half of British art history was eradicated by Henry VIII. Now, of the period, who knows what we made? Who knows? We've got our cathedrals, which, of course, we go out and enjoy and praise to the skies, rightly so. But really, we need to imagine that all of those were full of great art, probably, but we will never know what it is because it was all destroyed. So there's this sense in which half of British art has been destroyed. Now, you know, the, the pen is mightier than the sword, and whoever holds the pen is the person that sets these laws and rules and regulations and writes the storylines. The first art historian, Vasari, was an Italian, so he puts Italian art at the front of everything. He completely ignores the Northern Renaissance, or basically ignores it, and creates a storyline that we've followed ever since. Now, let's just say there was somebody around in Britain in the 15th century who was writing a fantastic book about all the art we had in our cathedrals and his magnificent crucifixions at Ely and, and what was happening in Wales. Who knows, right? Who knows? It was all destroyed. So we are talking with a, about a history that is not only sensitive in spirit, but has also had this battering that no one else has had. No one else has had as much destroyed as we had. So we, we have painters who come along who don't shout and scream in, in that big Catholic way, but who are geniuses of a different sort. The Paul Nashes of this world, indeed the constables. And we've had our big players. You cannot argue against Turner. You, you can't argue against Gainsborough. You know, we've had uh, William Dobson, my man in the 17th century, was pretty much as good as anybody else at the time. You know, we've had these, these, these figures who came along and did important things. So I don't agree with you. I think the way to approach this is that British art had a particular flavour, not that it was no good.
Well, it had particular flavour, but it, when you compare it to other countries' particular flavours, I think it, it ranks very low. I mean, they were quite keen on religious iconoclasm in the Northern Netherlands, and they produced uh, Rembrandt and Co. So I don't think you can blame it all on Henry VIII. And in any case, much of what Henry VIII's lot destroyed was, was as I say, made by artists imported from continental Europe. But, um, uh, but let's, let me just quickly interrupt. Um, I did um, a fantastic series last year with um, the, the famous Bolton forger, Sean Greenhouse, presented by Yanina Ramirez, the brilliant art historian from Oxford. And in it, one of the things we did were the Nottingham Alabasters. Now, do you know much about the Nottingham Alabasters? Not a great deal. Okay, there'll be a hope in your book about British art, because in the Middle Ages, the most popular church decoration in Europe was the Nottingham Alabasters. There's an entire school in Nottingham making altarpieces, making um, little dips, wayside shrines, fantastic things to go in churches, and everywhere had them. So that's why when the Reformation happened and the dissolution of the monasteries, most of the Nottingham Alabasters in England were destroyed, so we don't know about them. But before Christmas, I was in Naples, and there's a fantastic reredos of Nottingham alabaster in the Capo di Monte Museum in Naples, you know, hanging down the other end of the corridor from the Caravaggio. There is this lost history. So you can't just dismiss it. You have to try and imagine it and certainly try and give it a place in your book, Bendor. Okay, well, hurrah for the people of Nottingham. But and as I said, there are islands of brilliance, but the destruction notwithstanding, I don't think uh, we can point to the lack of any sort of obvious other uh, inheritance across Europe for the impact of British art, even early British art. I mean, let's be frank, whoever made a grand tour to Britain to see its art? I'll tell you one group of people who did, and that was uh, artists from colonial America, because the the idiom was you had to go and paint portraits. So people like Gilbert Stuart and Copley and Benjamin West came over, and they took, uh, frankly, a rather dull uh, concept of British portraiture back to America, and it's sort of it dominated American taste in a little bit, what, the 1920s, 1930s. Your average uh, American magnate wanted to have a, a house fitted out like a duke. And British-like portraits uh, dominated the taste until it was all um, overturned in the 1930s. But that, I think, is another negative aspect of British art. And the reason I think we can look askance at it is that not only did we we eventually, by the 18th century, came up with, as I say, this this sort of uniquely British concept of uh, the portrait, which we were quite good at for a bit. But then we exported it to other places that, that, that were part of the British Empire. And then we squashed the extant schools of art that were already there. I mean, the same thing happened in in India. Uh, for, so for every Thomas Gainsborough we have, we have a, a, a flurry of Robert Holmes. Do you know who Robert Holmes was? No. He was a jobbing portraitist, you know, no disrespect for him, but he went out to make his fortune in India working for the East India Company, like so many British artists. And he ended up being the court artist of the King of Oud. I probably haven't pronounced that properly. Uh, but he was sort of supplanted there with the brief of painting portraits of the King of Oud looking like George III, uh, making a throne for him to look like a British sort of prince. And he designed all his furniture. He's just one example of the deliberate obliteration of Indian art in an attempt to sort of westernise, Europeanise or Britishise uh, the whole of India. But isn't that another story? I mean, oh, that's terrible that I'm on your side on that one. But that's another side of it, isn't it? That's, that's another storyline, surely. Uh, I mean, I've never heard of this chap because he hasn't played big in the history of British art, let's face it. The reason people didn't come to Britain on the Grand Tour 
I'll tell you, had as much to do with the weather and what you could get <laughs> to eat in the restaurants. And unlike Venice, the majority of the population weren't prostitutes, which is what drew a lot of people to, to Venice at the time in the Byronic generations. But there were all sorts of reasons why people didn't come here for a grand tour. Um, listen, I'm a, you know, I'm a foreigner. I, I, I was born of a Polish family and I'm the last person in a way who, who should be feeling any sense here of, of, of wanting to, to fight the British corner in this. But I absolutely think you're, um, you're, you're, you're kind of misreading things. It, not everywhere can be the fountain of the Renaissance. I agree with you that there. But lots of national schools have their idiosyncratic flavours. And just as you regret, quite rightly, the obliteration, perhaps, of, of, of idiosyncratic and, and endemic national art flavours in Indian art, so the same could happen here, you know, we, we holding on to a, a, a sort of British modesty in art, a tasteful landscape, a gentleness, the things that I think you can say are consistent in British art. You know, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. And, and we may not be a nation that has filled filled churches with triumphant crucifixions, etc. But we've done modest things. And the landscape tradition does owe British art a lot. The portrait tradition does owe British art a lot. And in modern terms, Artists of the stature of Henry Moore, artists of the stature of Francis Bacon, more recently, Damien Hirst, Tracy Emin. You know, these are people who have played big in the world of art. I mean, Britain has as much claim to have invented pop art through Richard Hamilton as American art. You know, don't do it down, Bendy. Um, you need to be fair as, as, as well as sometimes, of course, honest. Yes, I think I think um, modern British art is when we we might finally have cracked it. So I would I would agree with you on that element. But just as you say that the core elements of British art are its modesty, I think it's important that we are modest about British art because we do have a tendency in Britain to think that everything uh, British art was great. And to use a phrase that our prime minister likes to use a lot, <laughs> world beating. But it wasn't. And the sense that it did go and beat the world was was actually profoundly retrograde and, and negative so mm. i think it's important that we are modest about it and that is that is my main point well that's fair enough i, I take that point put that way and anything that compares with what the prime minister says um, i'm on your side on fortunately you can always fall back on this podcast and that's why coming up soon in the next item we have something very exciting because it's the return yes the return the much anticipated return of the waldy and bendy awards the Waldy and Bendy Awards. Yes, it's the Waldy and Bendy Awards. Those precious Wendy's that everybody wants to get. So this week, Bendor, uh, I thought we'd do something which is very topical, really, because uh, we wanted to talk about children in art. Now, children have played a big role uh, in this lockdown of ours. Uh, there's been a, a lot said about what it's like to have them all at home all the time and homeschooling and how to keep up their exercise and what to feed them. And, you know, it's a, been a big issue here. And so uh, I thought this would make something interesting to, for us to look at because children have a problematic past in art. They haven't always been treated, I think, with, with great elegance and, and insight and perspicacity and all the stuff you want from good portraiture. But they have been popping up a lot. So it's certainly worth a, a good look at this. Now, what we did was we came up with a good shortlist and uh, we are now going to present to you in the first of the uh, Waldy and Bendy Awards. Because next week we're going to do the very worst painters of children. This week we're going to do the very best painters of children. And so all of these that we're going to name here are good. 
but we've done them in, in the right order. So everybody's cast their votes and we've seen who's got the most and who's got the least. And rather surprisingly for me, the least number of votes for the best children's painter has gone to someone that I love and adore and whose children I think are fantastic. But um, he must have been voted down by others. And that is, of course, Picasso. Bendy, you must have given him a low mark. Picasso, wasn't he a fabulous painter of children? Well, well, dear. <laughs> Yes, you you dropped the shortlist. I have to say he wouldn't he wouldn't have been on my shortlist. And then you you asked us Teo and I to put some votes in from one to five. And I must confess, I slightly rigged this because I couldn't even give Picasso a one. I gave him a big fat zero. Now I can see you shaking your head, and I say this with some trepidation. Well, actually, I don't. But, you know, I think Picasso. I just he just can't do it for me anymore. I'm afraid the more I know about him, the less I like his work. I think he was a terrible bullying misogynist. And I, I just don't think, I don't think also cubism works for pictures of children. I mean, reducing a portrait of a child to its sort of core elements in that cubist manner is sort of redundant, isn't it? Because isn't that what you want to capture about children anyway? They are already sort of there in their purity before we um, impose all our prejudices and preconceptions on them. So no, I, I, you sent me some examples and I thought they were all terrible. So there we Bendy, go. Bendy, you're imposing your prejudice and preconceptions on, on this already. So you're, not one, <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're in no position to call others out on this one. Picasso. Um, he was a fantastic painter of children. And one of the things to point out straight away is that he did paint them. You know, there's lots of artists in, in art history have had children. Not that many have made them the subject of their art. And certainly not as forcefully as Picasso. Now, what I really, he's, he, and he did it all through his career. So he had the early, the blue period pictures, there are some sort of forlorn children looking bedraggled in, in the spirit of Murillo in Spain. But I don't really like those as much. I think they're a little overly sentimental, which is a big problem when you paint children, you're yes. overly sentimental. Yes. But Picasso isn't. But his moment as a, a painter of children came when he was with Francois Gillot, um, after the war, and they had these two beautiful children, Claude Picasso and Paloma Picasso, and they popped up all over his art. And this is what's fascinating about it. I mean, there are fantastic pictures of Claude as a baby, playing with his toys, playing with his bus. The one I really love, he's just sitting there holding a lobster, a sort of wriggling lobster. And the, the thing about the cubist faces, the sort of eye up, up on the forehead, the, the mouth where the cheek should be, if you get that right, and Picasso did, you get this wonderful, cheeky sensation of, of a child that is naughty and having fun and smiling. So it's a way of, of almost animating a portrait and giving it a sense of time. And you can just see this, this fantastic picture of Claude with his lobster. Um, and he's also, he hasn't got any pants on, right? So it's that, that kid sitting on the ground, he hasn't dressed properly and he's having fun and giggling. And to get that spirit in a picture, so you couldn't do that in traditional ways. You couldn't do that by doing a straight portrait. You had to do it by reinventing the way art works. And that's what Picasso did. <clears throat> and he went further than that. I mean, he did a series of um, fantastic sculptures at the time as well. There's one of a baboon that's rather famous. And it looks just like a baboon, but the head is made out of a toy car. So it's one of Claude Picasso's toy cars and he's reused it. And it's come out as the head of a baboon. And that sense of magic which i you know that this is the brilliance of picasso's hands that sense of transformation that you get with him you know that allied to an innate sense of fun because he was a painter who knew fun liked liked fun he was never pious in the way so many artists are his understanding of children this sense of him 
playing with them. That famous quote of his, like, you know, I could, by the time I was 14, I could draw like Raphael. It took me a lifetime to learn to draw like a child. He was in touch with a certain playfulness, a certain disregard for convention that could be described as childlike. And he put it into his pictures. And I would have placed him far higher than that. I think Picasso is one of the great painters of children because he captures the real spirit of children. Yes, some spirit, though. I mean... You, you mentioned the early works and the blue period, the ones you didn't like. And I hesitate to bring this up, but perhaps it's because I'm an overly anxious or overly protective parent. But one of those pictures is you know, the picture of, um, I think the title is Young Girl with a Basket of Flowers. And it's a young girl who's naked. It, it sold a couple of years ago in the United States for, in New York for about $100 million. And it was hailed as a sort of a picture of, by Picasso that defines humanity. And then I only noticed in about paragraph 15 of the catalogue text uh, that this girl, she had a name. She was called Linda, and she was a child prostitute, and he painted her when he was 13, and she's there naked. And given what we know, Picasso's proclivities with women, it might have been one that he slept with. And I, I just sort uh, excuse of... Excuse me, you can't just throw that in. You just can't say things like that. That's, that's a terrible accusation. And I have to say, I completely object to it, and I think you're wrong. He did a whole series of blue period pictures of prostitutes and their children, and they were driven and, prom and prompted by Murillo's paintings of beggars, 17th century pictures of beggars. And if you look at that whole series of blue period work, it's all about this perhaps overly overwrought image of, of, of how terrible the modern world is, particularly to women and their children. But I think that's an objectionable uh, suggestion. And really, there is a lot wrong with Picasso, but for heaven's sake, let's not call him, you know, a man who raped 13-year-old children when he was 20. You know, that's just beyond unfair. Well, I'm not sure we can be absolutely sure about this. Well, of course we um, can. Why shouldn't we be sure of it? Well, because of what else we know about you know, his... No, in, in art, you see life. what you want to see. You've come, you've come at this with this preconception of, of what you think that work is about. I mean, surely, you've, you're, you're a father. You've looked at a child. You've seen children naked and you've certainly seen their innocence and felt it i'm sure and wished somehow to declare it and protect it and prompt it that's a that's a difficult thing to paint but it appears in art sometimes and when you see it there you know it, it's, it's wrong to, to to misrepresent it and to Im immediately imagine the very very worst about it so i would just argue against that and on no evidence at all i don't think you should suggest it all right well i have suggested it <laughs> i think there's a bit of evidence quite a lot of evidence there well, that's something we can argue about. I'm sure one thing we won't argue about, at least I hope we won't argue about, is uh, the American painter Marie Cassatt, who uh, is famous for painting children, rightly so, I think. Uh, Marie Cassatt, uh, Bendor, are you, are you inclined to be more generous towards her? Oh, yes, much more generous. I, I gave her quite a good score. I thought they were lovely. I was interested to see that they're more about the theme of motherhood and maternal love, aren't they, than actual just depictions of, of children in her art. You mentioned earlier on the importance of not being sentimental when you depict children in art, and I don't think her pictures are overly sentimental. And it struck me that that's because they're, they're slightly detached, it seemed to me, as if she was an observer rather than a participant. And, and you'll have to forgive me if I'm speaking from a position of ignorance about her career, but from what I gather, she decided against marriage um, in order to uh, further her career. Obviously, it was a difficult time for a woman to be an artist, and she decided to put her career first. And I wonder if that sense of, uh, of, of sometimes cool detachment in her depiction of children and motherhood, it comes out of a, a sense of um, a poignancy and perhaps even loss. Mm. Well, she's famous for her children. And of course, I mean, for those that don't know her work, you know, she was an impressionist. She, she was, although she was born in America, 
she showed with the Impressionists in Paris. She was a very close friend of Degas. And there's a rather famous Degas uh, image of her walking about the Louvre. Um, so she was right in there with that bunch at a key time. But uh, her paintings of children were mostly done when she returned to America afterwards. And um, they're full of, I think, really beautiful observations of the relationships, indeed, between mothers and children. And, you know, one of the things about children that people often get wrong in art, I think, is the the physicality of children. You know how you hold a wriggling baby? They're never like uh, they feel in, in a Raphael's uh, holy family, you know, just sort of sitting there placid. There's a sort of wriggly nature to them. Their arms and their legs point out at weird directions. And also, she paints them often from the back because it, the mother's there and she's holding the baby and the baby's wriggling in front of her. And that sense of it is brilliantly done, I think. And, it, and it's done with um, a sense of observation, but also interest. And what can't be underestimated is the, the, the very fact that she's painting these types of subjects at the time she was painting them, you know, in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, for a woman to claim this subject matter as her own, to, to start painting children and mothers, not from the sentimental view of a male artist of the kind that Picasso, for example, in his blue period, later went on to use, but from the more informed view of a woman whose friends had children who knew about children. That gives the, the art a, a different atmosphere. So I like the quietude of it. There's a sort of sense of the clock ticking. It's, it's a mother and daughter or mother and baby at home. But I also like the way she managed to capture the, the reality of, of the Wrigley kid, if you like. Mm. Yes, I'm absolutely busy there. Okay, well, we like Marie Cassatt, and I wonder, therefore, if we will also like um, the painter of children who is finished next in our list. So they're basically the third best painter of children, according to Bendor, myself, and Taya, our great maker of the programme, is uh, the American 20th century painter, Alice Neal. And uh, she's someone who painted an awful lot of kids, and I think she did them splendidly. What about you, Bendor? <laughs> hmm. Well, again, I feel slightly constrained by your, your uh, shortlist, Wally, because I wasn't sure about these, to be honest. I think Paul Getty once said that you could be rude about someone's children, but you can never be rude about their art. That's even worse than being rude about someone's children. And, and here I'm going to do both, I'm afraid. So apologies to anyone who's listening who's had their kids painted by Alice Neal. I, I, thought, I thought they were largely quite grim. And they, it, looking at them reminded me of... of of that scene in The Shining when the kid's going along the, the spooky corridor and opens a door and there's two kids staring at him going, um, murder or whatever they say. Looking at the pictures, it felt like I was opening another door in that corridor again and again and again. And I, I, I ended the sequence of pictures in your email feeling, feeling a little bit disturbed, to be honest. Well, Alice Neal is someone, she's one of those female painters who was sort of rediscovered. But during her career, she was overlooked a lot. She lived a long, long time through most of the 20th century, born in 1900 in, Amer in America, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, for a lot of that time, she was fighting a lonely fight against modernism. So everybody else was doing abstract paintings and building skyscrapers and being modernist. And she was still basically painting people, figures and people. She had an interesting life. Um, she had, a, a, at one point, a Cuban husband who left her, left her with a child. She had mental problems. So she was someone who was emotionally complex. And she brings all of that to her paintings of children. And I think they're fabulous. And uh, can I just say to you that I didn't necessarily think that the first time I saw them. It took me a while to get into the spirit of Alice Neal. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping still that you may find something in, in the future that will grab you in the way that it grabs me. But again, 
what I like about her work is that it presents children in a real 20th century way that art previously hadn't done. So she does quite a lot of pictures of kids on settees and they're sort of perched on the end, eyes wide open. And you just know from the pose that basically they're looking at the telly. So it's like when you go away in the afternoon and you, and you plonk your kids in front of Sesame Street or whatever it is you do, and you come back and they're still there glued to the telly. You know, that had never been in art before. No one had done that before because male painters left their wives to it and went off and never bothered with it. And female painters hadn't been given the brushes and the permission to do it. So there's this excellent sort of throbby feeling of reality about them. And because she had these complex psychological issues as well and a hard life, there's something of a struggle in all her art. You always feel that there's something loaded about it. It's a bit like Diane Arbus. There's fantastic Diane Arbus photographs of the extremes of life. There's that atmosphere of it there. And so the children do have this slightly spooky air to them, some of them. You know, it is... It is The Shining in one or two instances. But I don't think that's because they're spooky children. I think that's more to do with Neil's attitude to life and how life is a kind of fraught and, and, and in turmoil. And, and I think she projects some of her own disquiet and turbulence onto the faces of these kids. But it makes them so interesting. And I think just the fact that she painted so many of them and in such a determined fashion makes her someone who should be really high up on our list. Now, obviously we could have put lots of old master painters of children in this, but I determinedly wanted to, to keep it a little bit modern because I think it's more pertinent to where we are now. And where we are now, the world of the lockdown, kids sitting in front of the telly, trying to send them off to do their homework when they don't want to, being forced to read to them at night, those kinds of things. That spirit is in Alice Neal, but it isn't, for example, in other artists that you might have chosen, 17th century painters. Yes, well, I can see your point there. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to spend more time with Alice Neal's pictures and perhaps they'll come out. Bendor, your enthusiasm for, for <laughs> these painters is, is knocking me out. I mean, I, what can I say? Hang you're, on, we've got two more to go. You're, you're one of life's great energizers. Well, I suspect largely through your voting, we have ended up at number two here, the second best painter of children in the history of art. And would you believe it by complete coincidence, it's Anthony Van Dyke. Uh -huh. Happens to be Bendor Grosvenor's favourite artist, but who is, I think, quite, quite, I can say this quite honestly, a really interesting and terrific painter of children. Bendor, over to you then. Well, I, first of all, I think, as you know, he's my favourite artist. I think he's one of the greatest portraitists who ever lived. And I think one of the reasons he is such a great portraitist is because he, unlike so many other portrait painters, he never developed a default way of constructing his faces. And, and that's a trap that a lot of portrait artists fall into, basically because they get tired, um, not unjustly, of painting people day after day. I mean, one of, one of the great sort of examples in British art is Sir Peter Lely, whom Samuel Pepys said of his sitters that they were good but not like because they all ended up looking like... Um, one of Charles II's mistresses, Barbara Villas. Now, the reason I think that's important when Van Dyke comes to paint children is because, again, lots of artists, and that partly reflects the time, uh, ended up, when they painted portraits of children, making them look like miniature adults. Uh, they were there all sort of stiffly presented in their uh, formal costume, um, poor sods, off to be betrothed to someone at the age of 12 or 13. Now, you, you very, very rarely get that with Van Dyke. And uh, one of the earliest uh, little pictures by Van Dyke that I discovered, which unfortunately I don't own, it's one that got away, was a little study of two putty 
two cherubs, and it was an oil on paper sketch done when he was in Antwerp in about 1628 or nine. And the reason the quality just shone out, the fact that it was, it was miscatalogued as Flemish school or something. But you mentioned earlier that, that restlessness of children. I mean, children are never still, at least mine certainly aren't. And this little sketch of a, of a putty standing up, it was so obviously done from life by a great hand. And although you couldn't see the hands of uh, the nurse or the parent holding the baby up, you could sense it because this little thing was tottering on its feet in the way that children taking their first steps are. Uh, and it was so beautifully captured. I think that's one of the elements he gets. It's not just a, a likeness of each individual child, but that sort of sense of floppy animation you get in kids. Yep, I think he's a marvellous painter of children. I mean, obviously he did most famously the the family of Charles I. So there's the five eldest children, isn't there? And then the three eldest children. And they, are, they aren't little adults. They are kids. And I like that very much about him because he was certainly capable of, of extraordinary flattery but also of, of genuine insight. And I think that his royal portraits of, of the family of Charles I are amongst the best paintings any, of kids anybody's ever done, personally. But I also liked his religious art. Uh, he, the way he painted, um, he did a few holy families, didn't he, with the Virgin Mary, St. John and Jesus together in these little crowds. And they have a beautiful atmosphere of genuine family about them. And the children are wonderfully well observed and they wriggle and their flesh is beautifully painted. They are totally convincing. I think that's the, that's the thing about them. They don't look as if um, he's unhappy painting children. He's got it exactly right. And there's that great painting in the National Gallery, the Balby children, it's called. I mean, these are young teenagers rather than babies. But they are standing around in their best Duke gear. Uh, so they're going to be dukes, they're going to be rich, they're going to be the kind of person you normally get in a Van Dyke picture, but they're not there yet. And there's even hints of a sort of beautiful awkwardness about the way he captures the poses and the way they sit in their costumes isn't, isn't perfect. So rather unexpectedly, because well, Rubens was a great painter of his own children as well, so his great pupil Van Dyck, you would have thought wouldn't be as good as Rubens, but rather unexpectedly, and I have to say this with delight, he turned out to be, if anything, better than Rubens even. And that's, that was a surprise for me. Uh, and that's number two. So we, that takes us to our winner. The, uh, the recipient of the Waldy and Bendy Award for the best painter of children in art. And I've counted up the votes. I think we're in agreement really on this because I, I put it top as well. And that is Velasquez. Yes, Velasquez is the winner of the Wendy as the best painter of kids. What do you think of him then, uh, Bendor? I think if we were having a sort of a Wendy night like the Oscars, Velasquez is one of those artists who would sweep the board, wouldn't he? In all the categories, he would probably win. Um, because he could do everything so well. Um, a very wise choice. Uh, I mean, partly I think it comes down to, to his technique, um, his, his, his amazing, his flickery style, his rapidity, uh, what you call the, you know, the, the, the quickness in the hand. Um, that's so good at capturing the, the restlessness of children, isn't it? But what range he had too, because we can see in, is, is Las Meninas, should we declare that, probably the most famous depiction of a child in Western art? I think it is, yes. Um, there you've got a, a depiction of, of an overly privileged kid in the Infanta standing there in the middle. And then at the other end of the social scale, you've got something like the water cellar with that um, really moving depiction of a, of a poorer child buying or, or perhaps involved in selling a glass of water on the streets of Seville with his gaze averted from us. And what a, what a magnificent pairing uh, they are. Mm. 
The range is what I like about it as well, because those early bodegons, the, the kitchen scenes, aren't they, where uh, the kids are, are just, you know they're real, you know they've been found in the street as models, um, and they have that, that beautiful urchiny air that, that the Spanish were so good at capturing, but also a sense of, of, of just of heartbreaking loss, really. I mean, they're, not, you know, they're poor, they're, they're battered, um, and, and that, you always get that with Velasquez, sort of great sympathy for the poor. And yet at the other end of his scale, you've got these great grand pictures of the royal family in Madrid. Las Meninas is obviously the best and best known example. There are lots of other pictures of the Infanta on her own. And, and, and indeed, in some of the other portraits of her, she's more of a little girl um, and slightly less of a princess to be. But in all these instances, yes, Velasquez's technique, his sympathy for his subjects, his extraordinary ability to capture a likeness that has an expression to it as well, all that makes him special. So there it is. I think we can happily agree on one thing at least, which is that the winner of the great and prestigious Waldy and Bendy Award uh, as the best painter of children is Velasquez. Hurrah. Anyway, that's it with the Wendy's for this week. And we're going to move on to the fun bit of the show, the bit where we get to choose something special, whatever we want to hang on the walls of our pretend house, our museum without walls. That's what we're going to get. On the wall. Hurrah! It's the on-the-wall moment, the bit I look forward to most, because this is where we get to choose whatever we want from the entirety of art to hang on our walls during the last moments of the lockdown. So, Bendy, what have you gone for? Pompeo Batoni, his first formal commission. It is an altarpiece, uh, which is still in its original place. It's in the Church of San Gregorio Alcerio in Rome, and... It's just one of those churches that, despite being in the centre of Rome, it's slightly off the beaten track and not many people go there. But I urge you to do so if you can, because there you go in this church and there's no one in it. And there's one of the great masterpieces of Italian 18th century art in there. And one of the reasons I love this picture so much is that it was, um, I keep coming back to this, this ability of art to lift anyone who just had the talent from whatever social position they were in to the very height of fame, and that's what happened to Batoni. And he was sitting under the arches in the rain one day, studying, doing copies of classical um, antique Roman statues on the steps of the Capitoline Museum, the museum as it is now, in Rome. And a, a wandering count was passing by, sheltering from the rain too, and saw Batoni's magnificent drawings and said, cool, this guy's good. And they got chatting. And Batoni's, I think he's 21 at this point, uh, never had a formal commission, and Count Forte Gabriele Valletta decides to give him this this commission to do the altarpiece for his tomb in this church. And it is extraordinary. Uh, the detail is amazing. The composition is so harmonious and balanced. The colours are fantastic. It also helps that it's in great state, uh, like so many Batoni pictures, because he really applied his paints carefully and diligently. And this thing really glows, and it's it's quite spiritually moving too. I'm I'm getting carried away about it, partly because I did make a film about Batoni a year or so ago, and I stood in front of this painting with with binoculars and zoom lenses and and feasted on all the glorious details. Uh, but I would love to have it on my wall during the lockdown uh, to lift my spirits, and I, I commend Batoni's early work to everybody. Well, Bendor, the truth is. You're welcome to it. I'm not sure I would like it at all. But Tony's an interesting character. I have time for some of his grand tour portraits. Um, he had undoubtedly talents as a portraitist. 
But I would say that he was out of his depth as a religious painter. And I don't really like this very much. I mean, most of the things we've talked about today, for example, the Virgin Mary sitting on a, on a tall pedestal. She's got Jesus playing by, on her lap. She's surrounded by saints and the odd angel and the odd Cupid or Puto. Um, but the baby is terribly dumb. The baby Jesus is straight out of the scrapbook of how to do a bad baby Jesus. Mm -hmm. Virgin Mary is not a strikingly anything figure. She's a sort of all-purpose, rococo, woman-y type of figure. Um, the arrangement of the saints is unconvincing. I mean, on the left-hand side, you've got, um, uh, I'm not sure who the saints are, but the one in white is, is in the foreground. Behind him, there's a nun, as it's St. Teresa of Avia or somebody, but they seem to be occupying the same space. It hasn't got any real punch to it. It's a bit of a rococo scrapbook picture for me. Um, and it's exactly the kind of picture that if I was in a, a Roman church, which I have to say, I don't know, I haven't been to this church, that, at least not, not consciously so, and I haven't seen this in situ, but just judging by the photographs, it's exactly the kind of religious picture I would walk past because there's nothing characterful about it. Oh, well, do you? In a way, I'm glad these, these, these podcasts are happening in lockdown and we're separated by computer screws. I think we might have come to blows today. <laughs> Good poor old Tony. Well, I'll have to try and persuade you about him one day. No, I like Bertone's portraits, but I don't, I don't think this is anything, um, anything special. However, I'm sure one thing we can agree on is that my choice this week for um, On the Wall is a special painting. Because I've gone, you, you, you're always going for Van Dyke because he's your favourite British painter. I've finally gone for William Dobson because he's my favourite British painter. Same sort of period. In fact, William Dobson followed Van Dyke as the court painter to Charles I. So he was his successor. He was there at this extraordinarily important moment in English history, the English Civil War, and he was there to leave us a record of it. He was native born, born in London, so he was a, an English painter. And I think he brought to English art a certain English quality, a kind of rumbustuousness, a four squareness, a directness. It's the opposite of elegance without necessarily being very, very inelegant, although he could do that as well. But this is a fantastic picture. It hangs in Annick Castle up in Northumberland, and it's a self portrait with two of the courtiers from the uh, court of Charles I. And they're all seen in half length. Dobson's in the middle, looking incredibly handsome. It's often said he looks exactly like Jay Rayner. Well, if Jay Rayner had a little bit more handsomeness to him, yes, he has that sort of long hair, beard, you know, swarthy, with a, a romantic air to him. And he's surrounded by these two, these two people. On his right-hand side is uh, a sort of chubby bloke with long hair and wearing a silver, silver doublet. And he looks expansive and, and rich. And on the other side, turning his back slightly to us, is this other sort of cavalier figure in a dark black outfit, looking more somber, not smiling. So there's a sort of contrast going on. You can immediately see that between um, a kind of bright and bouncy picture on the left and something more stern on the right. Uh, and indeed, the picture's based on a choice of Hercules. So in the original, which is by Veronese, you have Hercules having to choose between vice and virtue. And what Dobson did was to rework this as a choice between vice and virtue, but set in 17th century England. So he's in the middle and he's choosing between vice and virtue, represented by these two characters from the court. So vice is uh, Sir Nicholas Lanier in this white, silky, fat guy's outfit. And virtue is this lean, mean figure, Sir Charles Cottrell, in this black and meagre outfit. 
So it's a picture that not only is a portrait of the times, but is also underpinned by this wonderful storyline and this wonderful symbolic meaning. So yes, that's my picture. I would so love to take this from Annick Castle and to put it on my wall in the Museum Without Walls, chez moi. I've been lucky enough to stand in front of this painting and it is, it's fantastic. I love it. And we were talking earlier on about my, my rather shaky thesis of British art was no good, but William Dobson, uh, but when did he die? He was 41 or something. He was 30, 36 years old, but he died in 1646. So just okay. after the civil war, well, the, hadn't even finished properly. So, so he came back from Oxford, had a couple of months in London, supposedly in a, in a poor home, you know, died in poverty and died. That was it. So it's his career is locked very precisely into the years of the Civil War. Yes. And I think the extraordinary thing about Dobson is he emerges from nowhere as really the first uh, native, if we could use that word, British portraitist in oil of any, of any talent at all, really. Um, and then, goodness me, he dies when he's 36. And you just have to think, how different would British art have been had he had a, a, a middle career and a late career? Goodness knows what he might have achieved. Mm. Yes, a great loss. But also, I think we should also just thank God that he was there. You know, the Civil War is such an important moment in British history, a pivotal moment. Without that, where would we be? And we'd be a different country, wouldn't we, without the arrival of Cromwell and what happened next? So to have a native British artist with Dobson's talent around at the time to put a face to that moment, I think is, is actually rather fortunate. So um, he has this poignant life that goes with it. Great painter. I'd be delighted to have this on my wall. And I think we have to leave it at that then. We've, we've done a lot about British art in, on this programme. Um, we've had a few arguments about this and that. Um, but basically, we love each other very much. And I will always love you so much, Bendor. And that's why, for me, it's goodbye. And can't wait to see you soon. Cheerio. Waldy and Bendy. Bendy.